Uh, Guy, would you be willing to open us in prayer, please? Thank you. So last time we finished uh, John 8, and really I kind of think of John 7 and 8 together, it, it, it's a single section, and I was able to introduce a little bit about John 9, but we couldn't actually get into the chapter. But let me just um, repeat a couple things. I, I read this, this was uh, out of James Boyce's sermon series on, on, on John that, that described John 8. This new section differs from the one before it in that the old section, so that would be chapters one through eight, we see Christ being rejected by his own people. Well, in this section, this is kind of the new part of John that we're moving into. Um, Christ, being rejected by his people, begins to call out a new people. The first is exemplified by the story and the call of the man uh, who had been born blind, and that's what's covered in John chapter nine that we're gonna get into this morning. The central truth of John eight is the light testing human responsibility. In John 9, the central truth is God acting in sovereign grace after human responsibility had failed. Um, <clears throat> so it, it, uh, we've, we've got this important distinction. Uh, there, there, there's a pretty significant transition there, even though the, the text flows naturally uh, from it. There's, there's also some continuation that we also talked about last time. Um, in, in chapter nine, the uh, entire chapter is focused on Jesus healing a man born blind, but we would miss the point if that's all that we see. You know, there certainly is a physical um, miracle of real blindness that's being healed, but the miracle shows something of Jesus, and that miracle shows something of Jesus' power, but the greater miracle uh, of also healing the man's spiritual sight is the real point of the chapter. The eyesight to see Jesus for who he is, uh, to see and accept spiritual truth when it's presented to someone is a far greater miracle than the healing of physical eyesight. And that's gonna be the, the point of the chapter to, just to kind of watch for. So let's go ahead and get started. The miracle itself is recorded relatively quickly, although I think there's a lot to it, so we'll, we'll start with that. And then we'll move to the response to the miracle, which as is typical of John, is gonna take up a good chunk of the chapter. So. John chapter nine begins. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be, dis excuse me, might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
The first detail that might kind of jump out is that John specifically mentions that this man was blind from birth. It just doesn't say he's a blind man, uh, but he's blind from birth. And hopefully at, at this point in going through John's gospel, we're becoming accustomed to John writing at multiple levels. Um, at one level, you know, there probably are illnesses that, that take place that will lead to blindness that someone eventually recovers from. Um, and so I, I'm sure that in the ancient world there were real examples of someone that lost sight and somehow regained it at some point. Um, I'm a little bit more familiar with that than average because my daughter was born with a cataract in one eye, and so we had to learn quite a bit about kind of how to deal with that. Um, it, it's been kind of a, a, a struggle, and there was a real danger that if we didn't get her seeing and using that eye right away you know, as an infant at three months, that she would never be able to learn to use that eye because the, the brain is, the, you know, the most significant part of seeing isn't so much the eye functioning, but it's the brain being able to take signals from the eye and interpret that. Um, and so that was kind of the real challenge. And so if someone was blind from birth and had never seen, um, those, uh, you know, even if somehow their eye could start functioning again, uh, they, they wouldn't really be able to see. And the reason is that the brain's no longer to make, able to make those connections. Um, you know, it, it, um, medically, you can restore the eyesight of people that go blind for various reasons, but there's not much that can be done to give uh, full and uh, well-functioning eyesight to someone that has been blind from birth and was kind of blind during that formative time. Uh, some extent of vision can be reformed, but, but nothing like real eyesight. So it, 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 this is kind of a more impressive miracle in, in that sense. This is something that had never been done before, and that's a point that is going to be made in the chapter. But I think there's a, a more significant point. We're going to come to see this man as a representative of those that Jesus came to seek and save. And so in that way, we're all in the same condition that this man is. We're all blind from birth, and we need the miracle of regeneration to receive eyesight from Jesus, and that's going to be the point of the chapter. So in verse 2, what are the disciples asking? They say, you know, who sinned? You know, this man or his parents that he was born blind. So there's this underlying assumption that a specific sin is leading to the blindness. You can kind of look back in the rabbinical writings, and apparently some rabbis would actually teach that it was possible to sin in the womb, and that would be why birth defects happened. Um, and, you know, the other interpretations would be that maybe a, a sin of the parents might kind of cause specific birth defects. Um, I, I think that one thing that's just kind of worth pointing out and keeping in mind is that it, um, to the disciples, this is kind of an abstract theological question, a natural one to ask, but maybe not the best thing that they could have brought up in the situation, as we'll see. So is their question unbiblical? And I, I would say no. We, we certainly see instances in the Bible where the Bible is very specific that a specific sin leads to adverse consequences. And the one that I would probably go to, I hadn't been written at this point, but uh, you know, the, the idea of this is certainly present in the Old Testament as well. Um, we, we see in Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that, you know, among other things, was struggling with how communion was practiced. Uh, it was practiced you know, in a very unloving way where 
uh, members of the church that were well off, apparently got a lot more food, had a, a, a better position than you know, those that weren't well off. It, it wasn't equal. And uh, Paul is, you know, comes down on that very hard. Whoever eats and drinks the, um, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let that person examine themselves then and so uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who uh, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so, you know, there's, you know, serious physical illness and death that has resulted very clearly in, the, in this passage from not practicing the Lord's Supper correctly. Um, Well, no, the Pharisees haven't entered yet. These, these are uh, Jesus' disciples that are asking the question. Well, they, they probably did see themselves as, you know, not in as bad a situation, you know, in terms of sin as this person. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, that's definitely there. Um, now, I think... They, they should know their Old Testaments a little bit better, though. I, I would you know, kind of go to the book of Job in particular uh, for this. Um, most of you are familiar with Job, but in that book, it's, it, it's a long book, but you, we, you, we know that you know, Job suffers greatly, and the book is very clear that it's not due to a specific sin. Uh, Job is called blameless. Now, in the Old Testament, that doesn't mean that he was completely perfect, but you know, he he really was kind of seeking after God. Um, and the book is clear that there isn't a specific sin that caused the suffering to come to him. During that book, Job's friends pushed Job harder and harder to, to admit this sin and to repent uh, of whatever sin was causing the, miner, mi- the misery. And throughout the book, Job maintains his innocence. At the end of the book, he's, a, he's vindicated by God himself when God shows up. So we, we know that it wasn't a specific sin on Job's part that, that caused that. Um, you know, the book's not teaching that Job was without sin, but that Job followed God and sought to obey God's will and that this extraordinary suffering came anyway. Um, now, another example I could point to in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul, who I think was a, a faithful follower, as you know, at least by human standards. But Paul suffered some sort of physical ailment. It may well have been uh, bad eyesight. There's some good evidence for that but I don't want to get into that. Anyway, talking about whatever this thorn in the flesh was, this ailment that he suffered, Paul says, so to keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from co- becoming conceited. And so there's uh, clearly some sort of hindrance to Paul, some sort of suffering that, that he's going through that's not because of any sin, but in fact, because of revelations that God has given him. So, which is it? We, we see examples where sin does produce specific physical suffering, and we see examples where it doesn't. And I think we simply have to recognize that we have very clear biblical examples of both situations, and we need to accept that it, uh, suffering certainly can come from sin, and some does, but there's other instances where it does not come from a specific sin. Um, 
And I, I think a, a fair thing to do if we see a brother or sister in Christ that's suffering is, uh, I think ultimately that calls for wisdom. Um, we, we should really be careful not to judge and assume that you know, an affliction is due to some specific sin. But I think it would also be unwise just to assume that it isn't. Um, I, I think in most cases, we simply will not have the wisdom to know one way or the other, and we simply should support them uh, and pray for them, you know, kind of regardless of where that suffering is coming from, and except that we probably won't know in most circumstances. So I think a, a good question to ask is what sort of question should the disciples have, have been asking? And I think Jesus has tried to direct them to a, a better question to ask. He, he directs them in his answer uh, towards doing the works of God and towards gl glorifying God. Um, and we'll come back to that idea. It's a very important one. Um, but the reason the, for the blindness isn't such an important issue. Uh, the Im important thing is to see the man as someone that needs to see Jesus Christ for who he is. Um, the there's a, a question that I think is kind of being brought up here that, that's worth spending a little bit of time on, and that is what do we learn uh, from these verses and especially from Jesus' response about uh, suffering in general. And so let's take a look at the disciples' question again. It's specific, but I think it's getting at something a little bit more general. The disciples understood the Old Testament well enough to know that suffering uh, results from sin. That's uh, pretty clearly taught in, in Scripture. And so, seeing this man born blind, they go a little bit farther than they should have from Scripture, and they wonder what specific sin led to the blindness. You know, they, they miss the point of Job uh, and other parts of the Old Testament that do teach that sin is not, uh, or suffering does not always um, directly result from a specific sin, but might be simply a consequence of living in a world that's an enmity with its creator. I think a better question w um, that they, they should have asked and I think Jesus answers, thankfully, is why is there sin and suffering in the first place? God could have created a world that didn't have sin and suffering. Um, we know that angels are created sinless and that many angels will um, you know, eternally persist in a sinless state. Uh, so that would be a state without suffering. And with the high view that we have of God's sovereignty that we see in Reformed theology, we should be able to see that God could have created a world that wouldn't have had a fall, that wouldn't have sin, and therefore sin, suffering would not need to be a part of that world. But that's not the world that God created, as we are all aware. God chose to create a world that would fall into sin. And you, you might hear kind of this, this basic point brought up uh, today. It's brought up in a, in a number of ways, often called the problem of suffering or something along those lines. But the, um, the question or the kind of challenge to biblical Christ Christianity would say that a good God would not allow evil and suffering. And if God is all-powerful, He could stop evil and suffering. And so if those two th statements are true, God can't be both good and all-powerful. Um, of course, the problem is the two statements are, are not correct. This is this wasn't a, a problem for the pagan religions in, in Jesus' day. Pagans' gods weren't particularly good. Um, they were actually rather human in their motivations and their, their choices. Um, you know, this is probably the reason why Zeus and Thor and other gods have um, not been seriously 
uh, they haven't been seriously worshipped for a long time, but they're really popular in movies and, and stories still. Uh, in our day, uh, because I think they're, they're very human, and they're at least gods we can relate to and make, make interesting stories. Um, in our day, most believe in a, a god, and I've got that lowercase in my, my notes in, intentionally, who is good. Um, and so the solution to you, the, this quandary is, is generally that God must not be all-powerful. But the Bible presents a God who is both entirely good, entirely righteous, and entirely just, and is also entirely powerful, all-powerful. It also presents a world that's identical to the world that we experience, a world that has suffering. And so this is something that we need to wrestle with, and I think Jesus is giving us something here uh, to, uh, to look at. Jesus' response to the disciples' question gets at that larger question. The individual uh, born blind was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. How does that solve the issue? Um, first, you know, this, this is a topic that's been debated quite a bit through the centuries among philosophers and you know, a lot of individuals that are, uh, have spent a lot more time studying this and are a lot smarter than me as, as well. And so it, it's a very serious and significant question that we are not going to answer in maybe a, an entirely satisfactory way in a few minutes in a, a Sunday school class. But it, it comes up in the text, and so I want to at least go through the basics of a Christian response to this. And I, I think the, the response that Jesus is getting at. In, in what way does Jesus' answer show how a perfectly good and righteous, all-powerful God allows suffering? And Jesus is stating that you know, one specific instance of suffering at least, but I think this could be applied to all suffering, occurs so that the works of God might be displayed. Um, how does that answer the question? So I think that maybe the best place to start is to try to imagine what a sinless creation might be like. Suppose God had created a world that doesn't have sin and never had sin, uh, and, and so for, and therefore would never have had suffering. Uh, God could have done that. Um, the people that lived in, in that hypothetical world would see something about God. They'd see His power in creation, for example. They would enjoy continuous abundant provision from God. They, um, God would provide for whatever their needs and, and their wants in that world in a very generous and abundant way. Um, they'd enjoy fellowship with God. There'd be much about God that they could experience and they could rightly worship God for. But th they uh, would not know the extent and the depth of God's love because it couldn't be shown in a world like that. Um, God could only give to the objects of His love in ways that wouldn't really cost Him very much except time, and God being an eternal being has plenty of time. Um, you know, <clears throat> um, in, in the world that we live in, though, we are able to see the full extent of God's love for His people, and that's because it's revealed in the cross. Through the cross, God is able to fully demonstrate the love that He has for His people and in a way that wouldn't be possible without the fall. The, this world isn't perfect, but it's hard to imagine a world that could more perfectly allow God to display the full range of His glory, especially His love. The cross couldn't exist without sin and suffering that, uh, that accompanies sin, but the depth of God's love couldn't be displayed without the cross. Now, we, we should remember that things will not always be the way that they are now. God will create a new heavens and a new earth, 
where sin and suffering no longer exist and our joy and our fellowship in God there will be all the greater because of this world where God has been able to display His glory in a way that He couldn't have in a world that didn't ha have suffering. And I, I think that's kind of what Jesus' answer is, is getting at here. Ryle, I think, does a better job of summarizing this, and I also just want to point out this isn't just me saying this. Uh, so ab about what Jesus says uh, in, in what I've got up on the screen in red, Ryle writes, a deep and instructive principle lies in these words. They surely so throw some light on that great question, the origin of evil. God has thought fit to allow evil to exist in order that he may have a platform for showing his mercy, grace, and compassion. If man had ever fallen, there would have been no opportunity of showing divine mercy. But by permitting evil, mysterious as it seems, God's works of grace, mercy, and wisdom in saving sinners have been wonderfully manifest to all his creatures. The redeeming of the church um, of elect sinners is the means of showing uh, to principalities and powers the manifest wisdom of God. And that's from Ephesians 3, verse 10. <clears throat> Without the fall, we should have known nothing of the cross and the gospel. <clears throat> The next section, or in verse 4, what does Jesus mean by, you know, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. What does night symbolize? And I've looked through a lot of commentaries, and I didn't find any that I thought had a really nice way of presenting this. And so I'm going to simply answer that. I'm not sure what Jesus means in this statement in detail. Um, the, the most natural way to try to read this analogy is that you know, if Jesus is the light of the world, we can no longer work once he's ascended. And some commentaries take it that way, but that just doesn't seem to be consistent with the ministry of the church. Um, another commentary says that the, the night that's being referred to specifically would just be the three days while Jesus was in the tomb you know, between his death and his resurrection. Um, and uh, you, you, you can make a good case for that, except it also just doesn't seem to fit. Why make a big deal out of uh, three days? And I, I don't think it's that, that helpful to John's audience. So I, um, I've decided that I, I'm not going to try to unpack this as a full analogy and maybe just see it as more of a picture. Um, if we don't try to interpret it too closely and see, simply see you know, day, when we have daylight as a time when it's possible to bring people to Christ and to, to do good works and to see night as some period that's coming when that's no longer possible. Um, remember in the, the first century, work became completely impractical once it was dark. Um, I, I certainly think we get the correct idea of what Jesus is trying to say, you know, even if we don't have a uh, as nice a way of unpacking the analogy as I would like to have. Um, another thing to, to look at in the text is what does the blind man do before Jesus heals him? Because it, in, a, in a lot of miracles, there, there is something that someone does that initiates a healing, but we don't see that here. The blind man is si simply sitting there and people are talking about him, presumably without his knowledge, and Jesus simply decides to heal him. And given that this miracle, I think, is one of the clearest pictures that John wants to give of salvation, I think that's going to be significant. 
another detail that probably jumps out as you read this is that there's a lot of time spent on how Jesus carried this out, uh, the mud and the saliva specifically. And if we look ahead in the chapter, that's pointed out a second time. The Pharisees uh, ask questions about that. They're, they're really interested in the fact that Jesus used mud and saliva to do that. Um, it's a rather strange detail, and you'll find a lot of interpretations about it, but it, it must be important because it, it comes up in the text twice. Jesus didn't need to heal with that method. He could have simply, you know, healed by command. He's done that a number of times. He's, you know, healed through other means. Uh, so there, there's a reason, first, that Jesus healed this way, and second, that John chose to record uh, that detail. Um, the, as I said, there's explanations that kind of go all over the place. One of them that, that may have some truth to it uh, and it's not incompatible with what I would probably lean towards, is that uh, there's a lot in the way that Jesus healed this individual on the Sabbath that would have provoked the religious leaders. First of all, saliva was generally considered to be ceremonially unclean. Further, making mud uh, where you're kneading something would have been considered to be work, uh, and that would not be permitted on the, the, the Sabbath. Um, this particular section doesn't mention that this is the Sabbath, but we'll see that uh, as the, the, the chapter unfolds. Um, so that would um, be consistent with the, the, the significant interest that we see from the religious leaders in how Jesus did that. There's three violations of the Sabbath. First of all, there's healing on the Sabbath, then there's kneading, there's the making of the mud, and even anointing someone's eyes uh, was not permitted in a lot of interpretations of the, of the law. So uh, they, they had eye ointments in the first century, and those were very commonly used because there were a lot of eye ailments. And most, maybe, maybe a majority of Jewish interpret, interpreters of the, the law did not permit those to be applied on the Sabbath. It wasn't life-saving, and so it wasn't allowed. Um, so if that's the case, we should ask, why was Jesus trying to provoke the religious leaders? Um, we've seen the, this issue come up previously, both in John's gospel and others. The religious leaders value very strict law-keeping over, you know, uh, uh, over human beings. They're very strict with small details about the law, but they're blind to what the law point to, points to, you know, important things like love for others. And you know, it's worth pointing out that Jesus is the only person to show love or concern for this blind individual in the entire chapter. Um, more importantly, um, th the religious leaders are blind to who the law points to. Jesus' violation of their interpretation of the law is going to make that apparent. Um, there is another explanation that I've probably come to favor personally, but the, the two aren't incompatible with each other. Um, as we have talked about, Chapter 9 begins this important shift in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus has appeared in Jerusalem and has given his most clear statements in chapter 7 and 8 about who he is and what he's come to offer, and he's rejected. Corporately, Israel, doesn't, Israel wants nothing of the only Messiah that can offer them real hope. A political Messiah might improve uh, Israel's situation uh, nationally, but it won't 
bring that nation any closer uh, to having direct fellowship with God, in, which is uh, what, what Jesus is here to do. In John's Gospel, chapter 9 begins this stage where Jesus is no longer seeking to bring uh, Israel to himself. Instead, this section is focusing on establishing a new people, the church. Uh, in healing a real person you know, who, real, who uh, suffered this real you know, lifelong b blindness, Jesus is also providing a picture of how he's going to establish that people, how he's going to call and build that church. We see a clear picture of salvation in this miracle, and we're going to see that as the chapter unfolds. We, we haven't looked at that uh, very much yet. Um, but the mud and the clay v may very well kind of remind us of how Adam was formed in the creation account in Genesis. And so it would be appropriate that we would s kind of go back to that same account um, when you know, the, um, God is starting to form you know, the new people that will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Um, and, and so it's appropriate to highlight that you know, the miracle of regeneration in that way. Um, you know, this is you know, a, an act of creation that uh, Jesus is starting that's every bit as important, in fact, more important than the first act of creation. Another detail that we see here is that Jesus you know, tells this in individual to wash in a pool called scent. What does that mean? Um, I, I've been stressing, and what we're going to do as we go through this chapter is we're going to start by kind of looking at trees throughout the chapter and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at the picture of salvation that, that's given in the chapter fully after we've done that. That's probably going to be next week. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to come more to that picture, but um, this, this miracle is very clearly intended to be a picture of salvation, and you might just need to take my word for it right now. Uh, it's an intended to be a picture of what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world, which was the, the emphasis of chapter 7 and 8. Um, it is washing in the one that God sent that restores spiritual sight to those that were formerly blind. Another detail that I think is important and that we're going to see in this chapter, the man born blind shows genuine faith in you know, this man called Jesus, although he knows relatively little about him and has never actually seen him. Uh, Jesus will come to him later uh, and expand on the limited knowledge of Jesus that he's going to have for most of the chapter, but that faith is real before that happens. You know, many have come to see, uh, many have, have come to saving faith before they learn a lot of the theological details about their Savior, those follow. And we'll, we'll come back to that idea when we kind of go back through the chapter a second time. So let me go ahead and read the next section that we're going to look at. We will be picking up speed a little bit. <clears throat> the neighbors and those who had seen him before uh, as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go and wash, or sorry, go, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him to the Pharisees, or sorry, they, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. 
Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said, uh, so they, they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Um, let me uh, stop there and kind of ask one question. We, we see a division in the Pharisees between kind of two different groups. They're, they're both looking to the same Old Testament, and they're both seeing signs from Jesus, but which group is reading the Old Testament better? The, the first party, I think, has the stronger reasoning. Um, if Jesus doesn't keep the Mosaic law, he's not from God. Uh, the problem uh, with their position, of course, is their lack of understanding of what the Mosaic law means, especially, and the, the, what the Sabbath means in particular. Jesus is perfectly obeying the law that, in the way that God intended it to be obeyed. It's their understanding of how to keep it that was an error. Um, I think the second party is on somewhat dangerous ground uh, theologically in saying that an apparent miracle must Im imply divine endorsement. And so I've got a few passages that I think are, are worth going to. I'm, I'm not going to put them up, but we could think back to the Exodus account. Um, I'm going to read from Exodus 7, verse 10 through 12. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and, and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron uh, cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. And if you, you read on in the Exodus account, we see several instances where the Pharaoh's magicians are able to reproduce some of the miracles that Moses performs. Uh, eventually, they're not able to keep up, and they, they can't produce some of the, the later plagues, but they can reproduce some of the f further ones. The text is not clear if they're using actual magic through you know, pagan sorcery or whether they're using illusions. I would probably lean towards the second personally, but the point is it doesn't matter. I think I, I've, I've been to you know, illusionists and seen things that seem completely impossible, and I, I would not be able to explain uh, and would think I would, had seen a miracle if I didn't know I hadn't, and if the illusionists weren't up front that you know, this is just an illusion. Um, another one that we could look to, uh, Moses in uh, Deuteronomy writes, if a prophet or a dreamer arises among you and gives a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go to other gods which you have not known, let us serve them. Uh, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commands and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or dr that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. Um, so uh, another one. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, uh, Jesus states, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And finally, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about you know, the, the coming of the Antichrist. Uh, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So the, the point, I think, of these passages is that even if you do encounter a miracle that just can't be explained, uh, something better than David Copperfield could pull off, um, it, uh, it still does not prove that th what the, that person is saying is true. Now, it might make you pay attention if, if what that person is saying is consistent with, with Scripture. Um, you know, it, that, that's something that the um, Jesus audience certainly shouldn't, should have seen, that both Jesus is performing miracles that they can't explain, and Jesus' teaching is perfectly in accordance with Scripture, in fact, is pointed to by Scripture, then the, the miracle should have at least had them pay attention. But um, you know, signs themselves do not prove that someone is from God. And uh, that's why I would say that, that that group of Pharisees is on very dangerous ground in, in uh, saying that. Um, I, I think it's also good to point out that the point of miracles, especially in John's gospel, is not so much the supernatural character of the miracles themselves, but what they point to about who Jesus Christ is. Um, the supernatural character is important, but it's secondary. The main element is what the sign points to, and that's Jesus. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and continue on to verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him, um, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, uh, he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. Um, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. There, there should be no other explanation that a man born blind uh, has received his sight. What should the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have thought about when they investigate this sign and realize that it simply can't be explained away? Um, there's a lot of passages that we could go to. There's a couple in Isaiah that I think are particularly helpful. Um, Isaiah especially often connects the Messianic age with the blind receiving sight. Um, in 29.18, Isaiah writes, in that day, talking about the Messianic age, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the, the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. In uh, 35 5, he writes, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and their, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. In Isaiah 42 6, this is the first of four servant songs. The fourth servant song is Isaiah 53, um, that really clear picture of, of, of Christ that we have in Isaiah. Um, so in, in the first servant song, Isaiah writes, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the uh, prisoners from the dungeon and uh, from prison those who sit in darkness. So there's, there's a lot, especially in Isaiah, about... Uh, the Messiah opening the eyes of, of those that are blind. <clears throat> um, looking back over their investigation, there's three different parties that are involved. There's the man's parents, that, or the, there's the Pharisee, there's the man's parents, and then there's the man himself that was healed. Um, how do each of these three respond to the situation? The Pharisees, I think, start with the assumption that the miracle can't be genuine. And when their investigation kind of persistently reveals otherwise, they still don't question the assumptions that they started with, but instead they attack the man that Jesus had healed. When uh, he argues with them, when he unequivocally demonstrates that their position just doesn't make sense, uh, instead of reconsidering that position, they don't want to listen to him anymore, and they have him thrown out of the synagogue. The man's parents respond a little bit differently. They, they simply don't want to be involved, and they're trying to do their best to kind of keep their heads down, so to speak. No one can be neutral, though, when it comes to Jesus. They show that they value their attachment to the synagogue more than they value the man that healed their son. While they might have wanted to remain neutral, they end up placing their well-being ahead of Christ and ahead of truth. They, too, have information that should point them to Christ, but instead of responding to that, they suppress that in order not to lose their place in the synagogue. An appropriate response would be to think that if Jesus had miraculously healed their son, he may indeed be from God and that they should listen to, to what he's saying. Uh, instead, uh, you know, they, they, they do their best to kind of avoid the issue entirely. Finally, the man that's born blind begins by simply trying to state the truth objectively. Like the others, he doesn't have all the facts, but unlike the others, he at least knows that he doesn't have all the facts, and he doesn't try to make um, more of what he uh, knows than is appropriate. He's intelligent and insightful enough 
uh, to see right through the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he ends up you know, proving the absurdity of their position, even though it eventually costs him you know, a place in the synagogue. So there's actually a lot more in these verses, so we're going to come back to these next time, but I just wanted to kind of at least finish with that. And we'll, we will finish John chapter 9 next time and hopefully get started on a little bit on John uh, chapter 10. I've probably got time for one quick question before I close. Yes. Question, but um, philosopher, Christian philosophers have an answer to that. How could an all-loving and all-powerful God allow sin, evil, and suffering? And it's called the greater good theodicy, which is, is that there is no sin, evil, or suffering from which God cannot turn into a greater good. Mm -hmm. And I think that yeah. kind of jives, but it, it has a name. It's called the greater good theodicy. I just thought I'd throw yeah. that in there. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I think that's pretty close to what Jesus is, is saying in the way that Jesus responds to the question. Thank you. Okay. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have opened our eyes to who you are. I thank you that um, you have revealed yourself through Scripture to us and that we can see something of your glory and that this is a glory that we'll, we're able to see more and more of as we study your word and as we uh, ponder uh, what you have provided for us in your word. And this, we, this is something that we will continue to do throughout eternity as we uh, come closer and closer to understanding the depths of your glory and your riches and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.